Thank you for being here this morning. You know, when uh, actor Billy Crystal's daughter turned 11 years old, he was filming a movie in New York and was not able to be there for her birthday, but he gave her a phone call and said, expect a gift to arrive at the house at some point during the day. And so she waited anxiously, and Billy Crystal hopped on a plane and flew from New York back home to Los Angeles, put himself in a cardboard box six feet tall, wrapped it up, put a bow on it, and rang the doorbell. When his daughter answered the door, she was so excited, she ripped into the box, revealing her father. And Billy Crystal said it was great. She hugged and kissed me all over. And he said, I wasn't about to miss her birthday. I had missed 25 birthdays with my father. I was not about to miss this one with my daughter. See, Billy Crystal's father died of a heart attack when he was just 15 years of age. There was an elderly man who was suffering from Alzheimer's, living in a nursing home. And every Sunday, he would go into the courtyard to meet his daughter, his son-in-law, and his two grandchildren. Every Sunday, it was routine. He would go to that courtyard, and he would love on his grandkids. But as time grew on, he became more and more feeble, to the point that he couldn't remember many things. But still, every Sunday, he was there in that courtyard. And finally, one Sunday, his daughter asked him, Daddy, do you know what day it is? He said, no. And she said, then how did you know to meet us here on this day? He said, I just come out here every day, hoping that you're here. Fathers are great, aren't they? They're so great that they will wrap themselves in a box and show up at, at their doorstep to surprise their daughter. They're so great that even when their mind has faded, they meet in that courtyard every Sunday morning, every day, in fact, hoping to see their children. They're the real superheroes in life, aren't they? And so are our mothers, and we're going to talk about them next week. But fathers love their children. We began this series last week by discussing the first family and everything that went wrong. After their sin, Adam and Eve went and hid. In verse 9 of Genesis 3 reads, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And I believe if the God were to show up at your doorstep today, he'd be asking the same question. He might have a problem with your wife. He might have a problem with your children. But first and foremost, he's going to want to know where the man of the house is. I want to make a disclaimer before we go any further. This is a series on family. That's the context of what we're talking about, and we need to talk about that. But I do realize that there are some in our audience who are single. And like when we talked about marriage a few months back, I mentioned that just because you're not married doesn't mean that you're less than. Single Christians aren't broken. They don't need fixing. I also understand that there are people in our audience who are married who maybe aren't able to have children. There are some who want to have children more than anything else, and they're just not able to. And I, I sympathize, and I understand that a sermon like this might feel like pouring salt in a wound a little bit. Just please know that I, I get it. 
And I'm not trying to alienate anyone this morning or throughout the next few weeks with this series. We need to talk about family and what it means to be a godly family. But I do recognize that there are different dynamics in our audience. Please stick with me. Please stay with me. I think there's something for everyone in this series. I've also noticed that over the years, I've listened to sermons on Father's Day that seem to beat up the fathers. Father's Day sermons tend to focus on how the men need to step it up. Then we get to Mother's Day, and it's all about the mushy stuff. How great our mothers are and how, how we should be exalting them. Can we just all agree that we're all imperfect? Can we just get that out on the table? We've all got problems, whether you're a mother or a father. And I think it makes our mothers uncomfortable to treat them like they have the hardest job and the best job in the world and to act like that they are, are perfection personified. We all have problems. Not every father is Tim the Toolman Taylor or Ray Romano. And not every mother is June Cleaver or Carol Brady. We've all got issues. I love our fathers and our mothers. And I think they're doing a great job. Why would we beat up our fathers at church? You're here. You've brought your family here. You know, it, it never fails that every week I have one of our precious families come to me and apologize for how loud their kid was. And I always tell them, I'll be honest with you, I don't hear it. It's kind of like when you're playing sports, you don't hear the band, right? It's the same thing. Very rarely do I notice your child crying, but I will tell you this. I'm appreciative of that. I'm appreciative that you have them here. I'm appreciative that even though they may be acting up a little bit, you're here, you're trying, you're working at it, and you may not have heard a sermon in three years, but you're here. And I'm so, so grateful for that. Please don't apologize for that. I love our fathers. They are the super men in our culture. And I love our ladies. And we're going to talk about the Wonder Women next week. But this morning we're focusing on our super men. Look with me at the words of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Chris read it a moment ago. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing of which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, there's one thing that seems to be true of virtually every superhero, and that is that they do their best to disguise who they are, right? So Peter Parker does his best to hide the fact that he's really Superman or that he has that superhuman ability. Bruce Wayne goes to great lengths to cover up the fact that he is Batman. Bruce Banner, David Banner, depending on if you go by the TV show or the movie, right? Dr. Banner is that nerdy scientist who, when he gets angry, turns into the big green monster, the Incredible Hulk, and he tries to hide that. Superman, the superhero, is a little bit different, right? Who he is at his core is Superman. And so he is Clark Kent in disguise, right? He puts on glasses, which is funny. Nobody can tell who he is because he wears glasses in a suit. It's kind of like when I go to the grocery store and I'll wave to some of y'all and y'all just look at me like, who in the world are you because I have a hat on? Seems like if I put a hat on, you know who I am. That's the way Clark Kent is, right? But he's disguising who he truly is, which is Superman. He's not from this planet. He's from Krypton. 
which means that he is an alien, a stranger in this land. And even though he grew up on this planet, he feels this sense of incompatibility, like he doesn't belong. And every single one of us should feel that same sense of incompatibility. And we should pass it on to our children. Aliens beget aliens, right? So you as an alien, teach your child what it means to be an alien, how to live as an exile in this world. Because you don't belong here. You live here. You're raised here. You built a life here. But ultimately, this is not your home. You're a pilgrim. You're a stranger. And I think that's one of the first things that a dad teaches his child is that we are not of this world. For our citizenship is in heaven, Paul writes, from which also we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our lowly condition into conformity with his glorious body by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. If we're going to conform to anything, let's conform to Christ. Let our conformity be about that. This, of course, means that we will be a little uneasy in this world, Because the world is not always accepting of those that live out their faith. That's one aspect of Superman's life that is not analogous to our life. We don't cover up who we truly are. We don't try to hide our true identity. No, no sir. We do everything we can to let others know who we are and who we belong to. And so we outwardly display the character of Christ like we talked about last week. We are a mirror in the world. We reflect the image of Christ. We let our light shine brightly. We don't try to fit in. We seek to stand out. Superman was very careful not to expose his true identity, not us. We do everything possible to stand up, to stand strong, and to show people that we don't belong. And it all starts in our own little part of the world, our home. What was Superman's weakness? You remember? His kryptonite, right? What was his strength? The sun. You see where we're going with this? Superman made regular visits to a place called the Fortress of Solitude. Why did he go there? Well, in a way, that was home. That was his place of refreshing and renewal. There were statues of his parents. There was a living quarters. That was his getaway. And I want every one of our homes to be a little city of refuge, a a fortress of solitude where we can all go to and find release from the world around us. I hope that's what our children see our home as, a place where they can get away from the world, where they can come and they can just find solace and solitude and refuge. When I was very small, we had a stray dog show up at our house. I wouldn't have mind kept in the, keeping the dog, but my parents didn't want a dog. And I, I know this is terrible, okay? But my dad loaded that dog up and drove it out into the country like 10 miles and dropped it off. And three days later, I walked out of my house and there was the dog. <laughs> Apparently, he wanted to be a part of our home really, really bad. I want that for my children. I want them to always want to come back home, don't you? I want them to always see our home as God's home, a place that they can come to for refuge, for solitude, a little city of refuge. Our homes should be that, where no matter what's going on in the world around us, we have release, we can find peace and security. It should be a place where they also find God and the presence of God. I absolutely love Genesis 35. Starting in verse 2, we read this. So Jacob 
said to his household and to all who were with him, Remove the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. And let's arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me on the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. Jacob manned up. He noticed an unsettling trend. He noticed that the people were serving little g-gods and not the one true God, including his household. So something had to be done, right? So he steps in and he does something about it. He says, okay, let's remove all the altars. Let's remove all the idols. And we all need to do that in our lives as well. We all need to clean house maybe of those American idols. And you know the ones I'm talking about, right? I've been guilty of it. I'm sure you have as well. Sports, extracurricular activities, school, job, money, whatever it may be. We're going to have to do some rearranging. We're going to have to, you know, get some order in our families. Making sure those little G-gods have their proper place. And the big G-god is first and foremost because Jacob realized he's the only one that we should be pledging allegiance to. And it's so easy to do this. It's not like we consciously do it necessarily. It's not like that some of these American idols are bad things. It's just we travel down the interstate and we're going full-blown, full-speed, and, and we look up one day and we see the flashing light that says dead end and we realize we've got to do a U-turn. Jacob did a U-turn. Maybe we need to do that in our homes, recognizing that sometimes we need to kick the idols out and let God in. In fact, maybe do more than that. Do more than let God in. Let God build the house. Psalm 127 verse 1, unless the Lord builds a house, they who build it labor in vain. Every house has a builder. All of you are building a house. There are a lot of builders. There are very few who pay attention to detail. There are very few craftsmen. A lot of builders, very few craftsmen, very few people that can pay attention to the details. There are a lot of people that can throw up four walls. There are a lot of people that can put a roof on. A lot of people that can build a shelter. But a God-built home? that follows the plans of the divine architect, a home that is built according to code, that allows him to supply the power, those are fewer and far between. Many of our homes have a sewer line that's providing unfiltered filth. Let me ask you, how many cages do you have in your house? Not to put your kids. Some of you want to kennel your kids up at night sometimes, I guess. But how many cages do you have in your house? Do you have a cage around your TV? Do you have a cage around your phone? Do you have a cage around your computer? Do you have a cage around the video game console? So often, it's not like Satan is knocking in the door and we're trying to keep him out. Sometimes the door's wide open and we just let him traipse right in without ever even considering the damage that he's doing. We're going to have to mark off some boundaries. We're going to have to build some cages. We're going to have to make sure that we, like Paul said, provide no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. When you make provision for something, you supply it. And all too often, we have a supply line entering into our home, bringing things that are filthy and nasty. There shouldn't be any provision for that. It doesn't mean that we have to 
to throw out the computer or throw out the video game console or throw out your phone or TV or whatever. It just means that we have to build a cage around them. And some of you are doing a really good job of that. You tell me about the, the apps that you have on your phone, that you keep track of how often your child is on their phone or on a certain app and you, you, you set up restrictions. Those are all good things, needed things. Because when it comes to this supply line, we've got to make sure that it's bringing good things in and filtering out the bad. Can I get a little preachy for a minute? Is that okay? Good, because I was probably going to do it anyway. Here's three things that I think that if we did these things, it's not an exhaustive list, but I think if we did these things, our homes would be better off, and maybe you're doing them already. Number one, make church attendance a decision made one time. One time. That's not something that's debated every Saturday night. Are we going to church tomorrow? No, we're going to church. It's, it's, that day is set aside. That time is set aside. Every week, we are worshiping together as a family the head of this household. Because remember, ultimately, the head of the household is not the dad. The head of the household, the boss of all this, is God. And that's a decision we make one time. We're going to be there. Barring anything unforeseen, we're going to be worshiping our Father together. Second thing I would say is be who you want them to be. The spiritual molding of our children starts with the spiritual modeling of the parents. You cannot expect your children to be more than what they see in you. Don't do the minimum and expect the maximum. May they see in you everything that you want them to be. And then I would say love God more. That one probably doesn't come to a, as a surprise to you because I've said it over and over again. You could probably repeat it with me, right? When you love God the best, you love God the most, you love others best, right? I can't even say it right, and I say it all the time. When you love God the most, you love others best. When you get God right, you get everything right. Put him first, let it have a trickle-down effect. Because when I love God more than I love my children, more than I love my spouse even, nobody is affected negatively. Nobody is suffering in that. In fact, I am a better father, I'm a better husband, I'm a better mother, I'm a better wife, I'm a better child. I am better at everything when I love God the most. Three things that I think could change our livelihood in our family. Of course, I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here, right? Consider David. Two events in the life of David that really stand out. He slayed the giant, and he was slain by the giant, right? Killed Goliath, and then the giant of sin had his way with him. Perhaps the darkest moment in David's life was his illicit relationship with Bathsheba. Probably know that story. He sees her bathing out on the rooftop. He decides he has to have her, and that's where the downward spiral began. Because of that illicit relationship, there was a child born that punishment from God would say that child is not going to live. So this illegitimately conceived child is, is going to die, and the child is born, and David believes that as long as the child is alive, there is hope. And so he prays and he fasts until the child does eventually pass away. And when the child dies, David does something interesting, something that was curious to the people around him. He gets up 
He cleans up, he eats, and he worships. And he says, for this son of mine, I can't bring him back, but I can go to him someday. David takes solace in the sorrow that his son is in a secure place and that he will see him again someday. But there's another episode in David's life with another son that you may remember. His name was Absalom. And Absalom's story really begins with David's daughter, Tamar. And Tamar had a half-brother named Amnon. And Amnon was quite smitten with Tamar. And he makes advances towards her, but Tamar refuses them. And so Amnon rapes her. And Tamar's full brother Absalom is incensed, he's enraged, and he's even more angry from the fact that David decides not to do something about it. And so Absalom takes matters into his own hands. He devises a plan to have Amnon killed, a plan that he successfully carries out. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 37 and following, it reads, Now Absalom had fled and gone to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there for three years. And the heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom. For he was comforted regarding Amnon since he was dead. So finally, Absalom returns to Jerusalem, but he's not permitted to come into the presence of the king, David, for two years. And during that time, he gathers the troops and he's going to take the kingship from his father. And he's successful. Now, David flees. He goes into the woods. He gathers himself and makes a plan to thwart Absalom's efforts. And eventually the forces of Absalom and David meet in mortal conflict in the force of Ephraim east of the Jordan. However, the love of a father is still evident in all of it. David specifically charges his captains, deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And his command, unfortunately, is ignored. Absalom, if you remember his fate, he's riding through the, the forest and his, his hair, his head gets caught in the trees. His mule runs out from under him and he is hanging there helpless. And David's men kill him. Upon hearing the death of his beloved son, Absalom, even though he was a wretched son, David cries out, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died for you, O Absalom, my son, my son. We have two sorrows here, don't we? The sorrow that David felt for his infant son is very different than the sorrow he felt for his son Absalom. Why? When he loses his infant son, he seems to have peace in the moment. And the reason why is because that infant son is secure. He's in God's care. Absalom, however, he does not have that confidence because Absalom rebelled against God's anointed, he rebelled against God himself. And so, his eternal fate was anything but bright. Both sons' destinies were secure. But only in one of those destinies could David find solace and peace. I've told this story before, I think, many moons ago, but... When I was the youth minister at North Heights in Batesville, Arkansas, we had a member by the name of Chris, and Chris and his wife Rhonda had three children. The youngest was a son named Derek, 
And when Derek was two years old, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And it was very sad as the doctors couldn't really do anything and Derek passed away at two years of age. And we were all concerned about about Chris because he was a, a relatively new Christian. We wondered how he would take the news, how he would react to, to this situation. Maybe he'd pull away from church and pull away from God being a new convert. But quite the opposite happened. I vividly remember Chris saying, you know, we always want what's best for our children and what's best is for them to go to heaven, right? He said, Derek's there. And he didn't have to live a life battling with sin living in a fallen world, he said, in some ways, I envy him that he made it. We always want what's best for our children, right? And heaven is it. And I'm so thankful for our parents here that are striving to get heaven into the hearts of our children, raising them in a godly direction. We'll talk about in a few weeks how You can build a godly home, you can allow God to build the house, and your children, as they get older, may choose to not build on that foundation. And all too often, we blame the parents for that. We're not going to do that in a few weeks. We're going to look at children and what it means to be faithful once you get out of the house. But what we can do as parents is right now make certain that we are building that city of refuge, that, that fortress of solitude, that when our children are They're growing up, or when they come back, they feel the presence of God. They know without a doubt that it is a God-built home. I ran across a little quiz the other day. It was called, How Dad Are You? Maybe you saw this quiz. Um, It's in pretty small font to get it up on the screen, so I'll just read some of them to you. The first one, you're supposed to check off which one of these apply to you, dads, okay? The first one says, guess it's free then. That's when a cashier has trouble scanning an item. You can laugh. This is the part where you laugh. Um, let's rock and roll. That's what dad says when it's time to leave. Uh, I was just resting my eyes. That's what every dad says when, they're, when they've fallen asleep on the couch. And you are asleep. You're not just resting your eyes. Uh, I guess they'll let anyone in here. That's what you say to someone that's a friend that you see in public. Travis, you said every one of these, buddy. I know you have. <laughs> I love this one. We needed this rain. The whole city of Abilene could be flooded, and some of you dads would say, well, we need it, though. Right? Um, That's not going anywhere. Every dad says that after they tie something down in the back of the truck, right? So this is the litmus test, I guess, for how dad you are. I can tell you this. The true litmus test For how dad you are is not this, it's this. Hear Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. You shall also tie them as a sign to your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. 
you shall also write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Love God the most and teach your children to do the same. That's the basic message, right? And like we said last week, we can learn a lot from the Israelite parents because they didn't do this, right? They didn't fulfill this, but we can. We can, and we should be a superman by being super faithful to a super God. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for our fathers. We thank you for family. We thank you for this family. And may we always seek to put you first, God. May we boot the idols out of our house, out of our lives, and may we glorify you in everything that we do. Help us, God, to love you the most so that we can love others best. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. I don't know where you're at this morning. Some of you, my guess is, Maybe struggling a bit in your family. Maybe, maybe your marriage is hurting. Maybe, maybe you're struggling with guilt for maybe the way you've been parenting. Maybe you feel guilty. Maybe, maybe you're, you're hurting because your children haven't built on that foundation that you laid for them. Maybe you're ready to take that next step in faith and put on Christ in baptism. Maybe you just need the prayers of this church family. We want to help you as this family with your family. So Jim's going to lead us in a prayer. If we can help you in any way, please come as we stand and as we sing.